about, um, about 10 years ago, before, um, before it was thrust into the political and social spotlights like it is today, um, I felt the Lord challenge me to uh, take some time to learn all that I can about the LGBTQ community and their intersection with uh, faith and with the heart of God and with the Word of God. And um, I assumed that God's goal in asking me to do this was that I would be able to establish a biblical position that I could defend. Um, I'm right, uh, therefore you are wrong, and for these reasons. But I soon figured out that God's goal and God's intent in asking me to start this journey was completely different. It wasn't so much to establish a position, but it was in order to learn to love people. And uh, to, to figure out that um, often on some of these difficult, tough issues that we face in culture, it's not about establishing a position, but it's about walking alongside people to discover the grace of God. And I realized that I needed to discover God's grace as much as anyone. And, uh, and, and so um, it's just been, it's, it's been fascinating these last 10 years. That, you know, as much as I've learned and as much as I've studied and as much as I've read, I've realized that, that what I needed was an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And God radically, or is, has back then and still is now, radically getting hold of my heart and changing and transforming the way I view certain people. That's essentially what our preaching series is about. It's about opportunities or moments that people have had in the Gospels where they have encountered the person of Jesus, irrespective of their backgrounds, irrespective of their circumstances. They have encountered the person of Jesus and have left radically changed and radically transformed. We've learned about, uh, you know, over, over the past kind of six or seven weeks, we've learned about the, the, the man who was healed, uh, who couldn't walk. We learned about uh, God or Jesus bringing truth to life for the man who was caught in religion. We learned about uh, this tax collector who was, who was scorned by culture and how, how Jesus spoke dignity and worth back into his life. We learned amazingly last week about a woman who had been shunned because of an issue of bleeding and how Jesus claimed her as his own and, and spoke worth and value over her once again. And next week, we're going to learn about a man who was demonized and radically set free. And the week after that, we're going to learn about how Jesus chose to love one of the Jews' most hated rivals. And in doing so, he radically broke through cultural barriers. And as much as we've celebrated the fact that Jesus has transformed lives as people have encountered him, I want to say every person sitting here in this room, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your life has been equally radically changed and radically turned upside down. The Bible tells us that we were once dead. We had as much, as much interest in Jesus as a corpse does. We were completely indifferent to the person of Jesus Christ. But in Jesus, we've been made alive. Our citizenship has been transferred. We were, we were once citizens of the kingdom of darkness, and now we have been transferred in Jesus to become citizens of the kingdom of the son he loves. For, for me and for my family, that is a particularly uh, 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 radical truth and a, a, and a real truth because our citizenship was once in the nation of South Africa. And I'm not saying they were the, citizen, they were the kingdom of darkness, but, but our citizenship was once in South Africa and it has now been transferred into becoming citizens of this nation. And so if, if, if I were to leave here today and break the speed limit and, 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 or do something foolish, 
The South African government have no jurisdiction over, over how they would handle me breaking the law. It is the American government that would come after me. And I want to say it's the same for us as we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. When we sin or when we fall short of God's glory, shame and guilt and condemnation will do its absolute best to come after you. But it has no jurisdiction over those of us who are transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God. And as Sheetal so wonderfully spoke last week, it's not law or condemnation or guilt that comes after us. It's grace. Grace comes after us. Grace chases us down. Grace gets a hold of us and overwhelms us. And we realize how good it is to be in the kingdom of God. For those of us who've encountered Jesus, our testimony is exactly like the man in, in, in John chapter 9. He says, before I knew Jesus, I was blind, but now I can see. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then my prayer has been throughout the series, it continues today, that, that I trust that you would come to know Jesus in the way that he has transformed our lives. I trust that you would come to know him in that same way. That, that joy, that peace, that, 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 that sense of love that we have in our hearts, Paul writes that, that, that it, is, it is his desire, it is God's desire that that joy that we have in our hearts because we've met Jesus would overflow to others. He writes in Romans 15, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love that verse because it tells us what our task is. Our task is to be filled with the hope that comes from God. It's, it's that simple. And, and God says he wants that joy and that peace and that hope to overflow from our hearts. And if, it, if it's overflowing, it has to fall on somebody. And I trust that that joy and peace and love that is in my heart, because I've been transformed by Jesus, would overflow into the hearts and lives of those around us. As Matt mentioned, um, we've recently come back from uh, a rather epic trip uh, to Paris, eight-hour flight, and then uh, from Paris down to South Africa, which is about a 12-hour flight. And, and during those long, sleepless nights on an international flight, when I was doing my absolute best pretzel um, kind of interpretation, sitting in economy class, trying to get, my, get my, seats, my feet underneath the seat in front of me, I had a lot of time to think. I had a lot of time to to consider all that God has done over the last 13 years. We celebrated our church birthday a few weeks ago. And, and there was, there's been lots to celebrate. God has done incredible things in this church. Over those times on those flights, I had lots of time to think about what God still wants to do. But one of the areas I found myself kind of thinking through was areas where I feel I could improve as a pastor. Areas where I feel like I want to improve as a pastor. And one of those areas where I feel like I haven't done a great job as, and I'm really intentional going forward to do better at, is helping equip us as a church family how to effectively engage an increasingly hostile culture that is hostile towards Jesus and the church. More specifically, I feel like God is, is challenging me to help equip us how to answer some of those tough questions that our friends outside of church are asking. Questions that are, are born out of challenges that our city are facing. Questions that are born out of challenges that our nation or our generation are facing. Those tough political questions that I'm sure you've all been asked. 
that are, that are kind of discussing the, the state of our city or the state of our nation and, it's, and the apparent lack of leadership and what is God, where is God in all of this? Those, those kind of cultural questions around issues of race and gender inequality and what is the church doing? Those moral questions about same-sex relationships and, and, and gender identification and, and where does the church stand? Those, those questions that arise from from people who have been subject to, to violence, the, the uprise in violence in our, in our nation, in our city, the uprise in violence and terrorism in our nation. And perhaps the hardest question to answer of all, and I'm sure some of you have experienced this, is those questions that come from personal loss. People who are struggling to identify or struggling to, to, to reconcile the goodness of God with the reality of personal loss or personal suffering. Sometimes, in fact often, those questions can be argumentative. Those questions can sometimes be divisive and cynical with the intent to, to kind of capture us or, or, or put us in a corner. And, and, and often, if you're anything like me, there, there are two ways that we tend to respond to those kinds of questions. We become defensive and argumentative ourselves, which is just no help. Or conversely, we become overwhelmed and we begin to shy away from the opportunity to engage people at a helpful level. Do you know what that's like, either one of those two? Either becoming defensive and aggressive or you shy away and you, you leave disappointed that you didn't take hold of the opportunity to share God's, God's word. Often though, those questions are incredibly sincere. Maybe you're here today. And maybe that's a question that you're wrestling through. Some of those political or cultural questions. Maybe some of those questions about the goodness of God in the face of some of the personal loss that you are going through. And I hope today, and I hope in the, in the months and years to come, not that we would necessarily only equip us to answer the question. But I think God wants to do something far more significant than just equip us to answer a question. And this is what I want to teach on today. It's how do we engage with people who are asking those tough questions? How do we interact with the people that are asking the difficult questions? How do we make sure that we don't just establish a biblical position that we stand upon? Because if we establish a biblical position that we stand upon and come across with that attitude, it assumes that I'm right, therefore that person is wrong, and immediately it forms a wall. But I think what God wants to do first in our hearts is to help us understand that he wants us to link arms with people and to, together to discover the grace of God. Mark chapter 12, the text that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is faced with these exact issues. And so what the, the question we're going to ask and answer today is, is, is Jesus, who was faced with political and cultural questions of his day, how did he respond? And what can we learn from how he, respond, how he responded to the people asking him questions. So Mark chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 13. We're going to look at a fairly lengthy passage of scripture. We're going to kind of jump around for the sake of time, not looking at, at every single verse. But in Mark chapter 13, this is, sorry, Mark chapter 12, verse 13, this is the, the first issue that Jesus faces, the political hot potato, the, 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 the big issue of the day that the Jews were facing. And the question that is being asked of Jesus is should they pay taxes to Caesar. In verse, uh, in verse 12, uh, sorry, verse 13, it says, later they, referring to the chief priests, 
Send some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees and the, and the Herodians were, were two different sects, two different representatives of the Jewish religion or Jewish faith. They sent some of the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch Jesus, to catch to Jesus, to catch him in his words. My goodness, I'm all over the place today, but I trust you tracking. Verse 14 says, and this is the question that they're asking, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it right, Jesus, tell us, is it right for, for us as Jews to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now clearly you can see this is, a, this is a divisive and contentious question. On the one hand, if Jesus were to answer yes, he would be guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments. On the denarius was an image of Caesar, and with the inscription, uh, 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 Hail Augustus Caesar, son of the divine. And so if Jesus says, yes, you need to pay taxes to Caesar, immediately the Jews could say, well, you are calling us to submit to someone who's claiming to be God, therefore you have broken one of the Ten Commandments, and they will have justification to, to kill Jesus. But on the other hand, if Jesus were to answer no, he would be guilty of tax evasion. And the Jews could then submit him to the Roman authorities, and they would have reason to kill Jesus. But Jesus sees right through their divisiveness. This is very similar to a question, a political, social, moral question that is being asked today. Is it right, surely it must be right, for two people, irrespective of their gender, to get the chance to marry if they love one another? You see, that's a, that's a really tricky question to answer. It's not just a simple case of yes it is or, or yes or no. On the one hand, if we, were on, if we were to answer yes, it feels right. Yes, two people who love one another should be able to, to, to get married, but it's in violation to God's word. But on the other hand, if we were to answer no, we would be labeled bigots and, and being narrow-minded. And, and the issue, friends, is, is, is that it's far more nuanced because we're not dealing with policies and church, and church policies and, and principles and positions that we're standing upon. We're trusting by the grace of God for his wisdom and insight to lead people into a better understanding of the grace of God. And so I'm not going to answer that question today. That's not the point of this sermon. Jesus sees right through that in verse 15. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He knew their hypocrisy because the Jews had submitted themselves already under the authority of Rome because they were using Roman money. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, pay the government the taxes that they are asking for. But he also said this, and give to God what is God's. You see, what he was driving home was that every person on this planet is also inscri is inscripted, has an inscription, has, a, has an image imprinted in them, and that is the image of the living God. And so he's saying, yes, give the taxes to the government, but give to God what is God's. Give to God what he's after, our whole lives. And it says they were amazed at him. Verse 18 is the second kind of challenging situation that Jesus finds himself in. This is the biblical conundrum, the biblical riddle, those hypothetical questions that people sometimes ask. Have you had, ever had any of those where people say, well, 
you know, imagine I had a friend who, who had a friend who's got a cousin and his aunt is finding themselves in this situation. What does the Bible say about that? And that's essentially what is happening in verse 18. The Sadducees, this additional sect within the Jewish faith, who, who did not believe in the resurrection and they did not believe in the miraculous. They were the skeptics. They come to Jesus now to begin to ask him some questions. And they throw this hypothetical situation at Jesus. They say to him, Jesus, imagine there was a woman and uh, she is married to a man, but the, 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 the husband, before he is able to, to, before they're able to have children, the husband dies. And because he, the, the, the woman is childless, according to Jewish law, the brother of the deceased husband needs to marry the woman. But you see, he dies as well. In fact, it happens to all seven brothers. Imagine being brother number seven if your six previous brothers had died because they married a particular woman. I mean, that's not a marriage that you necessarily want to go into. But it's a hypothetical situation. And so the Sadducees ask Jesus, they say, at the resurrection... Which one of the seven brothers will the woman be married to? You see, right away, Jesus once again sees the the cynicism and sees the divisiveness that is behind those questions. And he's able to, to turn the question around. In verse 24, it says, Jesus replied, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures. He says, You don't know your Bibles. But he says, goes on to say, You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I love the way, just as an aside, I I love the way how how Jesus marries knowing the Bible with knowing the power of God. You see, we're desperate as a church. In fact, I believe all Christians should be desperate to not only experience, but see the power of God uh, manifested through our lives. But let me tell you, if we want to operate in the power of God, we need to get to know the Word of God. The Word of God and the power of God go intimately together, hand in hand. Verse 26, Jesus goes on to say, God said to him, God said to Moses, I am, not I was, but I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Both cases, these are not sincere questions. Both cases, these are not questions that people are asking out of personal loss, like a mother who may have lost their child due to Chicago's gun violence and is trying to reconcile the goodness of God. These are cynical, divisive questions trying to corner Jesus and trying to expose him and trying to show that his understanding of Scripture isn't coherent or or the fact that that he's a hypocrite and he isn't able to follow God's word. But Jesus is sharp and Jesus is able to to identify their hearts and he turns the question around on them and he exposes the reality of their hearts. Now we can read these passages and if you're anything like me, you can say, that's great for Jesus. I mean, he's the son of God. He's operating in, in the fullness of wisdom and the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. What about me? How do I respond to someone who is asking a cynical or divisive question? How do I respond to someone who's maybe trying to catch me or or maybe trying to throw a difficult question at me? And I want to give you three little things, three simple keys on how I think we should respond, not necessarily giving the right answer, but how should we respond to people who are engaging us with difficult and tough questions? And the first thing I would say is simply this, adopt an attitude of humility. Number one, 
adopt an attitude of humility. I believe humility is incredibly attractive and intriguing to the world. They will never admit it. I guarantee you they'll never admit it. But humility for me, along with thanksgiving and hope, are so countercultural in our world today. Our culture is full of, is full of pride and, and arrogance. Our culture is full of hopelessness. Our culture is full of greed and, 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 fr- and frustration. And I believe one of the things that God wants us to do primarily is always approach life in the opposite spirit to the world. And three things for me that are vital is living with an attitude of hope, always being thankful and grateful. And the one I want to speak about today is adopting this this attitude of humility. The best definition I've ever come across for humility, and I try to figure out who it's attributed to, and it looks like 15 Christians have laid claim to this this definition. So, So I don't know who this is attributed to, but the definition of humility that I love the most is humility is not thinking less of yourselves. It's thinking of yourselves less. Humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it's thinking of yourself, thinking about yourselves less. And if you're thinking about yourselves less, can I say you are giving yourself room and freedom to think about others more. There are never winners in a contentious argument. I'm going to say that again. There are never winners in a contentious argument. Because even if you come up with the truth that is right and you take a position, inevitably it's, it's in the process you've lost a friend or you've lost a relationship. Proverbs chapter 13 says, where there is an argument, there is pride. Where there is an argument, there is an absence of humility. There's an absence of the, the fragrance of the kingdom of God and the fragrance of Jesus. This is why I think humility is so important when it comes to facing contentious questions. Number one, humility teaches us how to rest. And what I mean by that is humility teaches us that God doesn't accept us on the basis of us always being right. God accepts us on the basis of Jesus always being right. And if we can find rest in that truth, it doesn't matter whether we win or lose an argument. It doesn't matter if someone comes at us with contentious questions and we walk away without having answered them in order to maintain the relationship. Because we're resting in the truth that God accepts us on the basis of Jesus always being right. I came across this really amazing quote. It's probably right up there with one of my favorites. My my favorite all-time quote is, is the problem with all the books written on marriage is none of the authors are married to my wife. I I love that quote. (laughs) But I would say probably a close second is this quote that I came across this week. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom knows not to add it to a fruit salad. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom knows not to add it to a fruit salad. And the point is this, friends. When you're in a contentious argument, you might have the tomato of truth. But if you're adding it into the fruit salad, you're going to ruin it. If the discussion is contentious, adopt an attitude of humility. There's nothing wrong in walking away from a contentious argument in order to save the friendship that God can redeem at a later point. Humility teaches us to rest. But secondly, I would say humility teaches us to wait. To wait for the right time for the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. 
your friend or your, work, or your work colleague that is coming with a contentious question, can I tell you that the Holy Spirit knows exactly how to answer that person? But sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes patience to press into God, to discover the Holy Spirit's wisdom on those particular issues. And the other important thing about waiting is this, is when we wait and we face a barrage of contentious questions, eventually, I guarantee this, eventually, cynicism will be replaced with sincerity. There will come a time when your friend or work colleague's heart, it might take weeks, months, or even years, but your work colleague or friend's heart will shift from cynicism to eventually being able to ask a sincere question. And that's the opportunity we take to begin to bring some of the truth and wisdom of God. I had a friend back in South Africa, his name was Billy, and uh, him and I were never very close for the longest time, but the last year or so of us being in South Africa, we became very good friends. When I left my job working for a big chemical company to go into the ministry, I was determined that I wanted to try and stay engaged with, with people within the world. And I used to play cricket back in South Africa quite successfully, and so I decided to join a local cricket team so that I could spend time with, with people. Cricket is, is a, um, I was going to be derogatory to baseball, but I love baseball just as much. Cricket is a, is, is a gentleman's version of baseball. How about that? We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. And um, so I joined this team, and there was one guy on that particular team. His name was Billy. And very soon after I joined the team, he found out that I was a pastor. And he took great delight in cornering me or trying to corner me with, with very divisive questions and cynical questions, the kind of hypothetical questions that these Sadducees had thrown at Jesus. And he had no intention to know the answer. He would tease me about being a pastor Every time I would get excited if I, if I got somebody out, he would ask me whether I, was being, whether I was representing Jesus well by being so excited. I mean, really crazy things. And let me tell you, this went on for about a year and a half. And I waited, and I waited, and I prayed, and I waited, and I prayed. And nothing seemed to happen. And he was cynical, and he was divisive, and I waited, and I prayed, and I waited. And then one Wednesday, we were at practice, and Billy arrives at practice, and he's not dressed in his, in his cricket gear. He's dressed in street clothes, and he's as pale as anything. And I call over to him. I say, Billy, is everything all right? He said, Steve, I need to speak to you. I said, what's wrong? He said, my wife has just been diagnosed with a brain tumor, and she needs emergency surgery tomorrow. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? And at that point, his cynical heart had changed to a sincere question. Debs and I had the opportunity to sit with him and his wife, and we prayed for them. We led his wife to the Lord. We, I believe, sowed seeds into his heart. She went through the surgery, and the doctors said it was, she had a miraculous recovery from the surgery. You see, but God did something in that time because he was teaching me the importance of waiting, that God is at work in our friends' hearts more than we are. Sometimes we think we are the answer to our friends' questions. And yes, sometimes we are. But let me tell you, God is at work not just through you in that person's life. God is working in so many different ways. We need to just find the patience and the humility to rest in the fact that we don't always have to be right and also to wait on God for the right opportunity to engage. So when faced with divisive questions... Firstly, I would say, adopt 
an attitude of humility. And can I just say this last thing about humility? Humility is not like your favorite suit that you pull out for a wedding. It's not something that you wear occasionally and for, for, special, for, for special moments. Humility has an everyday feel to it. Humility is born out of, a, out of a relationship with Jesus. We love the fact that we are a people of God's presence. And can I suggest that I think the most natural quality to come out of, peop, about, to come out of being a people about God's presence is humility. Because we're in the presence of the King of Kings, and we realize that he is exalted and that we have the privilege of worshiping and serving him. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 28, the, the conversation now takes a slightly different tack. And now another religious leader comes to Jesus and begins to ask him questions. And he asks him the question, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? But Jesus sees something different in this man's heart. He, he sees a sincere seeker, someone who is desperate to know the truth. And so Jesus says this in verse 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This is the, this is the summary of all biblical teaching. If anyone were to say to you, what is the heart of the gospel? What is the heart of Jesus? You can refer directly to this verse and say, it is the fact that God wants us to love him with all of our hearts and God wants us to love others. So how do we respond to people who are asking tough questions? Number one, adopt an attitude of humility. Number two, and it might seem like an obvious thing to say, but it needs to be said, always respond in love. Always respond in love. And it's love for God and love for people. You see, some people claim to love God and to be doing things that, that, that hurt people. And sometimes people love to love others, but forget to love God and stay true to his word. And God is calling us to do both, to love him and to love others. Often that's a great answer to questions when people might say to you, how can, Christi how, how can people who call themselves Christians do X? And you can say to them, if they are doing X and it's inconsistent with loving God and loving people, it is not according to the teachings of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Think about standing next to the cymbal player of a high school marching band. I mean, with, I, love, I love high school. I, I've, I've had kids in high school, and, they, and they, there, are, there are musicians of, of varying degrees. But, but I, want you to, I want you to imagine a maybe not so skillful, but incredibly enthusiastic cymbal player in the, in the marching band. And what Paul is saying is if, is if we minister or, 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 or reach out to others without love, it is like that enthusiastic high school cymbal player. Dang, dang, dang. That's what it sounds like to the world. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and if I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I can answer any contentious question that people throw at me, you can bring on the most difficult question, and I can answer it. But if I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, 
and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Mark chapter 12, verse 35, the last little section, and we're going to end with this. Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, and he's talking about a particular psalm that refers to David speaking about the Messiah as the Lord. And in verse 37, Jesus says this. He says, David called him, David called the Messiah Lord. How then can he, how then can I be his son? Is essentially what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is doing is he's asking the all-important question. What about you? Who do you say that I am? You see, this is where Jesus wanted and wants every single conversation to go to is to get to the point where we begin to ask this question. What about you? Who do you say that I am? We can answer every question about politics. I can stand here and teach you a biblical and pastoral response to same-sex marriage. We can discuss and need to the issues of race and gender inequality. But we can totally miss the point if we don't ask the question, what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Can gay people get married? Depends how you define marriage. But who do you say Jesus is? Do we need to talk about racial and gender equality, dividing our nation? Absolutely. But we can't forget to ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? There are so many political questions going around today. But I want to ask you, who do you say Jesus is? And maybe you're here, right, maybe you're here today and you've got struggles and, 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 and sincere challenges in your heart with some of the, the, the imperfection this side of eternity. Friends, every single one of us sitting here have personal difficulties, struggles, challenges, some born out of personal loss that it makes it difficult at times for us to reconcile the goodness and power and grace and might of God with some of the things that we experience. And those are legitimate and valuable and necessary questions to ask. But I want to say, we can't ignore the most important question of all. And this is the question I want to challenge every single one of us with today. Who do you say Jesus is in the light of that challenge? Who do you say Jesus is in the face of those difficulties that you, that, that, that you are facing? We as a church believe Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom of God. We believe he is the substitutionary sacrifice for all of our sins. We believe he's the conqueror of death. We believe Jesus has ascended and he is our risen and exalted king. We believe Jesus is the giver of eternal life and the giver of the Holy Spirit. We believe Jesus is the name above every name, above every argument, above every pretension, above every sickness and every disease. We believe Jesus is the one who will come back again in glory to judge the living and the dead. As we bring this into land, James, can we get the worship team up? We're going to go back into just one song of worship. Because the, the way I felt that we needed to end this morning is in light of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul writes that, that, that the world uh, uh, fights in a certain way. The world argue in a certain way. They are, there is pride and there is arrogance and there's pretension and there is, there is uh, divisiveness. And there is the desire to establish a position by which we can judge others from. 
and say, because I am right, therefore you must be wrong. And in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that's not the way that we as believers in Jesus Christ are to fight. We are to bring those arguments down and submit them, bring them underneath the authority of who Jesus is. And the way we do that, friends, is simple. It's by exalting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And what I would love for us to do as we end the sermon before I hand over to Matt is stand together. I know it's hot. We're going to be another five minutes. Stand together, and I'll I'll, I'll invite you to do that in in a moment or two. To stand together and for us to sing, I exalt thee. And as we do that, I want to issue two encouragements or challenges to us. Maybe there are, contention, there are struggles in your heart that you haven't found answers to. This side of eternity, there will always be questions that we have. But the one thing we know above all else is God's love expressed through His Son, Jesus, and the fact that He is the name above every name. And so I want to invite you, if you are struggling with questions with issues, things that you haven't found answers to, can I invite you today to exalt the name of Jesus, to lift him up and to see those challenges in the light of who he is. Who do you say Jesus is? Maybe you're here today and you don't have any personal challenges or issues, but we face a world that does. And so if that's you, I wanna invite you to worship Jesus in the light of trusting to see his name exalted out there. This is a safe place for us to honor and lift up the name of Jesus. But tomorrow morning when you get in coffee, in your coffee room, and someone brings a contentious question, what do we do? Let's trust that Jesus would be exalted in those moments. Let's trust that our hearts would be humble, that we don't need to be right the whole time. Let's trust that we would always respond with an attitude of love. Let's trust that God would give us the wisdom to always work in some way of asking that person, Who do you say Jesus is? Let's stand together and let's end off with singing I Exalt Thee if we can. Thanks, James.